0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website www.slcevfree.org.
1: Have done something marvelous for us and therefore you call us to something you've enabled something it so I want to state here at the beginning my thanks that You have made it possible and You have called us to live with You, to live in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit, to sing in the Spirit, and to preach in the Spirit, and to listen in the Spirit. You've made that possible. You call us that You've made it possible. And whether we do with hands raised or not, with expression, that is visible or is more reserved is not the point. You have actually made it possible for us to walk through life with you and to live and think and speak towards you and towards your goals and your agenda in relation to other people and as we sit all by ourselves. You have made it possible. To know you and to be with you, that is amazing. Thank you for that. But you have done it in a way that is extremely counterintuitive. And I thank you for that too. Because in that you've shown your own wisdom and your own power. And so we praise you and I. Also, in addition to praising you, I I pray to you and ask you, would you descend on this room in power and command our attention for our good? Would you draw our attention so that we would think about this? And would have weak spots and falsehoods exposed in our minds and hearts, filled in by truth. Would have truths that we already know and love illumined more brightly and more beautifully and and therefore have our hearts warmed and stirred and experience the love of God in a new way. For those here, Lord, who don't know you, would you draw them, and for us who do, draw us as well. God, we stand here before You with Your Word open, many of us with the Word open in our laps, and I simply ask You, would You by Your Spirit move here and make this Word live? We cannot, but You can. And so I ask You to do that, to exalt Christ and to change us and to turn us towards You and give us a new taste of the wonderful thing You have done opened up a possibility for us to know You and live with You. Give us a taste of that this morning, I pray, by Your Spirit, for the glory of Jesus and for the good of Your people, I ask it. Amen. Theologian D.A. Carson once raised the question, what would you think of a woman who came to work wearing earrings Stamped with an image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb rising over Hiroshima. What would you think? Or to continue on with the thought and to embellish it a little bit. How about if you're sitting down one night to watch the news and you see a story about the opening of a worship center for a, a new religious offshoot group. And as the reporter talks to the leader of that group, you notice, you can't help but notice, behind him, across the front of the building, is an exact replica of the 16-foot wrought iron sign that hung over the gate at Auschwitz. Mockingly, work sets you free. And the reporter asks, what's with the sign? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we really love that sign. You should see the replica gas chamber we have inside. It really facilitates our worship. What would you think? You'd think those people are crazy. The the nice woman who sits in the next cubicle has suddenly become a little odd in her choice of adornment, and this religious group nuts in the sense of offensive. Grotesque, crazy. What kind of nut job mixes worship and mass death and execution? What kind of nut job mixes crucifixion and worship? We do, all the time. A big cross right here. We've got one right outside the door there. We've got another huge one on the front of the building. You had to pass three massive crosses to get to your seat. Probably a lot of us have earrings and necklaces. It's on the covers of our Bibles. It's on the sign. It's on the bulletin. It's it's everywhere. It's in our language, our theology, our songs. Crucifixion is intimately connected to worship and life for us and we have become so familiar with it that we miss something it was gruesome grotesque the message of the cross in first century Corinth carried cultural baggage much more akin to what the mention of Auschwitz carries for us today the cross was so awful that it was reserved for slaves and barbarians, Roman citizens were not subjected to it. It was not a subject of polite conversation. You shielded your children's ears and eyes when it came up. And yet every time these folks go to explain their faith, there it is, awkwardly, right in the middle of the conversation. There it is, and there it is today. Still, always has been right in the middle of the conversation, something that is incredibly socially off-putting. And our passage for this morning indicates that for at least some of the people in the church in Corinth, that difficulty was becoming just a little too much. It is always difficult to hold on to and embrace something that the culture around you finds offensive. Rejects. Is not attracted to, but cringes at. And there's a great temptation in such situations to kind of slide on by that point. To, to avoid it maybe. To, to mention it in passing, but move on to the things that are more attractive and more acceptable and more pleasing. That are more inclined to, to draw people. That's what a lot of sales is built on, I think. Here's the low, low introductory rate, which will become huge in a few months. But look at this. If you neglect that which is central to sell the periphery, you're at least disingenuous, and in this case, unfaithful. And there's a huge temptation to live like that in Corinth and in America today because this is so off-putting. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25, addresses this issue, the centrality of the cross and how we shouldn't be surprised that it is an offense. And yet, must be very careful to not move on past it and leave it behind or set it off to the side and marginalize it because it is an awesome and wonderful work of God. It is the center of what we are about. Praise God. So we're going to look at that today. And I'm going to do it under this main heading. Here's my main point this morning. I'm just going to divide into two pieces to give it to you in a sentence. The passage this morning is teaching us that we must be cross-centered in all of life because the wisdom and the power of God is made available to us in the cross. It must be cross-centered, cross-centered in all of life because that's where the wisdom and power of God is. Simple point. But let me read the passage before I go after my two observations. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1. Here's my first point The message of the cross is unacceptable to the fallen human heart on purpose. The message of the cross is unacceptable. The regality of the cross is unacceptable. It is off-putting to the fallen human heart on purpose by God's design. Start in verse 18, which flows right out of 17, where Paul said he wanted nothing to do with words of eloquent wisdom. Now here he gives the opposite, the word of the cross, which he wants very much to be about. And it is not wise, it is folly in the eyes of the perishing. Folly. Crazy talk. Which is not something silly. It's along the lines of madness. A little bit of a stretch. Insanity. Folly. People are nuts to talk about this. People still in their sin, that is still ruled by the human heart, which is the heart and the mind, the inside person. People processing the world through a human grid. Look at that and say, that is... Bizarre. Why? Why do humans regard this? Paul preaches, as he says in verse 17, as we all are supposed to preach, as verse 21 says. Why do people regard this as folly? As completely unacceptable? Because of what people are looking for. Because of what we do regard as acceptable. Keep reading down through verse 22. Jews demand signs. Here's what would be reasonable. Jews demand signs. Signs. The Jews are expecting a Messiah. The word for Christ, Messiah, the same word. Jews are expecting from the Old Testament, foretelling it through chapter after chapter, book after book. They are expecting a coming Messiah who would be a Savior, a Deliverer. Significantly, he would deliver them from all evil, from all oppressors, and would set up a kingdom of righteousness. So, as they often said to Jesus, show us a sign. Prove that. Prove that you're that guy. Prove it. Not that sign. Show me a sign like this. Not the sign of healing a lame person or caring for a blind... Kick the Romans. That's the sign I'm looking for. Show us a sign. In other words, display power like I want it. Jews demand signs. Greeks are looking for wisdom. In the Greek culture of the day, if you're gonna be somebody worthy of following or certainly worthy of being worshiped or adored, you need to prove that by some combination of philosophical or intellectual insight, expressed in an eloquent, persuasive, beautiful way that displayed learning, that displayed that you had a mastery of, of social skill and the way the world worked and you could make it work for your own advantage. You understood things. You were wise. It made sense and it produced positive results. You would be able to display that in your oratory, in your oration. Wisdom. And in the face of a demand of power that works like I want it and wisdom that matches what I agree with, we preach a Messiah who somehow managed to get himself killed in the most gruesome of all ways. Follow him, Leader of men. You're nuts. No way. Trust and worship this Christ crucified for life. Are you serious? You keep reading to verse 23. It's a stumbling block to Jews. That's a strong word. It's an offense. It's a scandal. It's an outrage. Are you deliberately trying to offend me? This is a strange way to win friends and influence people. You're you're poking me with a sharp stick while you're trying to win me. You're telling me that God's Messiah is crucified under the curse of God? It's an offense. And it's folly to Gentiles who spent their whole life trying to avoid the cross. All the the, the freedmen in Corinth spent their whole life trying to claw their way up the social ladder to get away from slavery, to get away from this potential penalty. And you're telling them to embrace it. And embrace when it was killed by it. The whole, the whole thing is a non-starter. And if you're a Corinthian Christian, if you're a Corinthian Christian, You're looking around town and you're saying, nobody's buying this. There's a problem here. Nobody's buying this, comma, maybe I should sell something else. Which is what all good, wise, market-driven people do, right? What happened to all the record stores? And moved on to cassettes for a while until they moved on past that and past that and past that. If nobody's buying it, sell something else. That's the temptation. And it's still an issue that we face today. It's, it's there in Corinth. It's here today. Not in exactly the same way, at least on America. We don't have the same... It, the cross is not quite the same lighting rod. We do put it up here in front of our buildings. We do wear it on our clothing. Because just to say the cross, Jesus was crucified, is not that big of a deal. But try having a conversation in the cafeteria where you say, not just that, well, I believe that Jesus was crucified in the cross, but continue on. I believe that Jesus was crucified in the cross... And I believe that the Bible says that only those who believe in him, that is, trust him alone to pay for their sins, will be saved. Everybody else who does not trust him only is perishing and going to hell. How will that go? You know how that will go. Which is why we're really careful when we get to that point. The cross still carries the very same offense. It's a slightly different aspect of it. If you're an American Christian looking around, you should conclude nobody's buying this. And the temptation is, maybe I should start selling something else. This is still a tremendous problem because of what the problem is about. This issue is a question of authority. Work this through in your mind. When Paul mentions Jews and Gentiles, he's mentioning the whole world. In part because that's who he's dealing with in Corinth, but Jews and Gentiles, that's the whole world. Only two categories of people. And he raises these two issues because they are two fundamental issues that the whole world across all of time has faced. People demand and will seek and will follow what they regard as evident power and evident wisdom. Process this. Listen to the pronoun. I will listen to you. But I will reserve the right to make my own decision. I will respect and follow and embrace power that is used in a way that I find acceptable and that benefits me. I will follow and order my life around wisdom that is wise in my own eyes that matches what I I find reasonable. So if you want my allegiance and support, you need to come to me with something that is acceptable and reasonable and attractive and desirable in my eyes and prove to me that you are worthy of me. That is me enthroned. It's never quite put like that, but that is what's going on. human beings one by one by one sit and evaluate what comes to them sit and process and make a decision about do i or do i not find this to be good that's christ crucified and given all that i hold in my back my the back of my mind no i don't like it and i turn it away that's me enthroned and the god who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble is not going to go for that on purpose deliberately he has wisely devised a plan of salvation that exposes our natural passionate bent towards meanness it exposes this natural Passionate, bent towards self-rule. It exposes this to be the fatal folly that it is as we smugly reject our only hope. Because it doesn't match with what we want. He's done that on purpose. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. To capture the intent, we could we could say, "I will destroy the so-called wisdom of the so-called wise." God, a long time ago, this is a quotation from Isaiah. God, a long time ago, said, warned people, "I, I will not. I will not engage in this contest." This game where you tell me what I must be. Where you tell me what you will find acceptable from me. I will not tolerate that. He warned about that. In verse 20, what Paul's saying is that now he has finally done that. He has finally destroyed the wisdom. How? In the cross. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? All cast down by God. He has made foolish the wisdom of this world. He has made it impossible for the world to know him through its own wisdom. It's possible. He's made it possible to know him, just not through the world's own wisdom. He has deliberately designed a plan of salvation that sets people who trust in their own wisdom over here away from him. Why is he doing that? To judge meanness. To judge self-rule. To put people appropriately in their place. Not because he's mean-spirited, but because we have a proper place. And he wants to clarify, this is your proper place beneath me as a receiver, not as a director. That is a way that is completely unacceptable to the human heart. It's going to take the power of God to change it, which is going to take us to the second point. Before we go there, I want to stop here and ask a question of this text, which I think is an important question, because so far I'm going on with these things here, and I suspect that as you're listening to it, and certainly as I was studying it, I'm asking this question Why is this here? Why is he bothering to explain all this to people who don't have a problem with it? He's talking to people who are not offended by the cross, who have embraced it. What, what's, what's he getting at? What's the point here? And then I read a statement from a commentator who says, this is perhaps the most important passage that the American church needs to hear. Is, is this on your list of most important passages for the American church to hear? Have you ever thought about this passage? It's not on my, it's not on my top five of the thing the church needs to hear. But this commentator, as he thought about this, was right about it, it's on his list. So I'm thinking, why? Why is this here? And why does at least somebody regard this as so important? So here's what I think. I think that we need it for the same reason that Corinth needed it. I've already touched on a little bit. We look around, and we see people are highly offended by this. People are not buying it. And what has happened, perhaps in your life, perhaps in our church, certainly in the church across the continent, is that we have moved on and begun to market something else. And that word market might be a nice summary if you want to write that down on your paper. We Americans live in a marketplace. I'm sure it's true for Westerners in general, but Americans especially. We live in a marketplace. And more than we realize, we process all of life through the question of, does it work, does it succeed? If yes, I will keep it. If no, I will trade it and find something else. I'll buy that if it works. I can sell this if it works. That's our world. And this message is not flying off the shelves. Time to replace it? The church across the country has concluded yes. We are not remotely... We are not remotely a cross-centered church in this country. And I wonder about here. I don't want to blame them. I want to talk about us too. We, we have a cross, several of them. But cross-centered. What does that even mean? It's not that we have abandoned the cross. We still talk about it. We still sing about it. But is it at the center of what we proclaim to others, proclaim to ourselves, and trust in? Let me put it this way. If I told you that five years from now, this church would be 500 people large and have double the budget, Would you think that was a success or a failure? Which one? What you should say is, I have no idea. You haven't told me anything relevant yet. And then you should go on to ask. Tell me, though. Is Christ crucified left and right and forwards and backward at the center of what they are about and what they proclaim and what they pray that God would in, would lift up and exalt in the eyes of themselves and of other people or have they prostituted themselves and grown like every other business in this country does by offering a product the people want at a price they're willing to pay Tell me that then I will know if 500 is a success or a failure Until then I have no idea Did they change their music, properly tweak the volume with just the right lighting, tickle the ears with wise, persuasive, soothing, helpful, relevant message from a different preacher who is much more charismatic? Did they band together affinity groups to develop attractive relationships and address the questions and needs that the world is asking that they found out through their researching of their target audience that is all around them? Did they change their name, change their decor, change their mood or their ethos? You can read. You go to any Christian bookstore and you will find books on the shelf written by Christians to churches advocating those exact things. Do it tomorrow. It's there. Now I want to carefully say some of those things are appropriate. We have to have lights in here, right? So it's wise to think about what lights would be good. We have to have a name. It's wise to think about what a name would communicate to people. It's helpful to think these things through, but we must not trust them. And we must be extremely careful, be on guard, recognizing that we are strongly tempted to do just that, because that's the stuff we can put our hands on and can affect. the stuff we don't need God for. And it has been proven time and time and time and time again, you can build a big gathering of people. It's not a church, but you can build a big gathering of people by doing those very things. It's been done and it is being done everywhere in this country. but it is at best disingenuous and perhaps unfaithful. We are strongly tempted in that direction, though. We are strongly tempted in that direction. You know, I look, I look out here right now, and we are a small group this morning. I mean, there's some weather to contend with. But we all know that as we look back over the last couple of months, there are some people who have left. And I've had this conversation several times about people who have left. And understand, I'm saying nothing about the people who have left. Nothing about that. I'm just saying there are some people who have left. And often when I've had the conversation, the piece, the unstated piece of the conversation is, should we be doing something a little different? I wonder if we, you know, maybe we ask person XYZ what the the issue was, and if we change that, maybe they'd stay. Or if we change ABC, maybe they won't stay, but these folks will come. What is that? What is that? Is it not what I was just talking about? If we are not faithfully proclaiming the cross and trusting God to use it to change and to draw, then we have something to think about. If we are being accidentally, carelessly offensive, then we have something to think about. But I don't think that's what we're thinking about. It is so American to judge success with numbers. If 200 becomes 500, we have no idea if that's a success or a failure. If 200 becomes 100, we have no idea if that is a success or a failure. It might be that that church is just now starting to succeed. Because the numbers and the budget are not the question. Christ crucified at the center is the question. At the center of our proclamation to outsiders and to each other, it's at the center of discipleship. Sanctification, if you will. Growth in Christ. Move from from a church-wide view down to a very personal view. I myself, I'm not talking about the American church, I'm talking about us, I'm talking about me. I myself am strongly tempted when I go on for a little while in a rut. Or when I face problems in my life that seem difficult and resistant to change. I'm tempted, I think you are too, to think what can I do? What should I do to work work the situation differently? I know, I'm a smart guy. I can be persuasive, I'll go talk to him. Is it wrong to go talk to somebody? No. The whole point is at times I'm trusting my abilities. At times, I'm moving away from a, a life that is lived in God's presence, a life that is trusting Him. Will you affect this here? And, and I'm moving to, you know, I really don't need God for this. I can produce some change right there. That's me. I think that's you. Is it? What this passage is about, in the first part, I've got a second plan I'm coming to what the passage is about is, is an alert to us that this message is fundamentally off-putting. It is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to the natural way we think. But it is to be at the center of the church at the center of our lives. God has done this on purpose to pull us away from our own abilities and turn us towards his because his power and his wisdom is available in the cross that's the second observation. Let me turn to that now. Only the cross, so here, second observation. Only the cross has power to set people free from bondage and blindness and save them. Only the cross, only the message of Christ crucified has the power that we need to set people free from bondage and blindness and to save them. Again in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The Bible can talk about how we have been saved, how we are being saved, and how we will be saved. And as we are walking through life having been saved, we can see something of this new power. Something of it. It's the power of God. Power for what? Power to make my life work like I want it to? No. As we keep sifting through the verses, we see, verse 21, According to God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's the goal. To know God. And it cannot come by worldly wisdom. Couldn't happen through human ingenuity. So God was pleased through the folly of what we preach, that is the cross, to save those who believe. There's the goal again in a different way. There's power in the cross to bring people into a relationship with God, to save to introduce them to Him. Power from God was needed if we were to know Him, to be freed from blindness, freed from slavery, freed from guilt. And we Christians, we should stop here for just a second, because I'm saying things that you're familiar with and that you know, We should stop there for a second and think about what that means. Power from God was needed to set you free from your blindness. Power from God was needed to set you free from your slavery, from your bondage. Left to yourself, you're still on the first point, looking at us and saying, "Makes no sense to me." Well, I see that He calls me to, to receive this, but I don't want it. I don't like it. I resist it. Power from God was needed to change that in you. And it is an awesome thing that he made that power available, under no obligation. If we had in ourselves seen the problem, weighed it out, and made the proper decision, there would be no need to worship Him. It would be a, a praise to us. But God has intervened with the power that was necessary. Praise to Him. Praise God for His glorious grace. From birth by virtue of our fallen natures, we are dead in sin, which means, as Paul said in second Corinthians four, that we cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. A lot of words there. there is something glorious shining like a light, the glory of God. It is shining. And we could not see it. It's not that we just don't see it, we cannot see it. We cannot perceive the goodness and the soul satisfying delight that would be ours from relating to and being close to God. We can understand the words, but we can't see it. Like a blind man in front of a sunset. He can't see it. You can describe it to him, or her. You can describe it to this person in words that make some sense. He's never seen the color red, the color orange, the color yellow. He's never seen those colors change over a landscape. At best, he is pleased by the idea of what he thinks it might be, but he is not delighting in a sunset. There is blindness there it keeps him from seeing the light of the glory. There is blindness in us from birth that keeps us from seeing the light of the glory. And so, not seeing the light of the glory, we remain suspicious of Him. Or as Romans 8-7 says, hostile towards Him. Unwilling and even unable, it says, to submit to Him in humble trust, separated from God, in rebellion against Him. This is this is the bad news. And if God leaves it right there and says there, in, in your human wisdom and in your human power, fix that. It won't happen. It can't happen. So He did something. He provided a power in the cross. Now, Think about a minute or two here. Think about some of this theology, but then I'm going to ask us to not get lost in the theology. But think about the theology here. Christ's death on the cross actually does something for those whom he calls. You got that here 24, those who are called. The death actually does something. You can connect Colossians 2 to this in your mind. He talks about the circumcision that is ours in the circumcision of Christ. Romans 6. How we are killed with Him and raised with Him. There's something that actually happens for you, Christian, at the cross. Kind of picture it as you identified with Jesus and as he goes to the cross and dies, you go to the cross and that old you dies when he dies. So something is changed in you. This old you is put to death, actually put to death. There's a spiritual change that happens there by the power of God. You're you're sitting on your bed. You don't even know it. But, But a power of God, something spiritual, actually happens in you. And then you are raised to life as a new creation, a new creature. Something has been cut away from you, to use the language of Deuteronomy that we saw twice, that circumcision of the heart that we needed, that's happened. Something's been cut away from you. And now as a blind man in front of the sunset, the scales fall off and you see. There it is. The light of the gospel's glory shining. And that now freed you, chooses it. Grabs it. Willingly. Gladly. He did something that removed blindness so that you see it for what it is, and then naturally, of course, you grab it. The power of God first acted. It was necessary, critical. Without it, you can't see. With it, you see. Those whom He has called both Jews and Greeks see it as Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It's glorious. It is glorious what He has done. All by His grace. All of it advancing the goodness of God contrary to the power and ability of people. All of it showing his marvelous love and denigrating our meanness. But do you see, it's not because he's against us. He's actually for us. Because what it does is it delivers us into the sight of glory. A comprehension of beauty that fills your soul. Here's why I don't want you to get lost in the theology because what all that theology has done is it has delivered you into the knowledge of God that was impossible of human knowledge. Now He has done it, saved you, delivered you into delight. That it's an awesome thing that He has done by His power to the praise of His glorious grace, the refrain of Ephesians 1. So I ask, in whom should we boast? Paul, Apollos, or Cephas? That question seems out of left field to you. It's from last week's passage. And if you were here last week, and it still seems out of left field, the reason I bring it up at this point is that that's always behind the scenes here. These several chapters... Do you find it odd that Paul raises this divisions thing and then moves immediately to the cross? You shouldn't. Paul raises the problem and says, I know where the solution to that is. Let's go talk about the cross for chapters. And he'll come back to it then, the the division between Apollos and Paul. It's, it's, It's simmering on the back burner. So here I'm going to talk again about what it means to be cross-centered. Cross-centered living will bring the power of God into every corner of your life. It will bring the power of God not just to initially know Him, but to know Him more and to know Him more, and to know Him more, and to know Him in this way, and in this situation, and to know this aspect of Him. If you are living with the cross at the center of your mind, here and here and here, and tomorrow and the next day, and at four o'clock, and then that power of God will be at work in you to change you. This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is not, or sanctification if you prefer that word, is not us enforcing better behavior on each other. It is us helping one another live cross-centeredly, or, if you another word, gospel-centeredly, which changes our behavior. But we help one another to live with the cross at the center. Before me, behind me, on my left and on my right. And as I think on that, here's what happens. I move from, Apollos is better, and frankly I'm better for realizing that. Which is the issue. It's still meanness. That pride is undercut ultimately by this message of the cross that leaves me thinking... Which one of us is to be boasted in, Uh, you know? What that says and what I'm thinking about and realizing is that I'm in myself and, and her and herself and them and themselves. She might be more wealthy and they might be stronger and I might be smarter, but all of us are fools and powerless without God. And with what he has done, he has equally changed me and them and her, changed us and brought us into the very same place as objects of his equal, lavish grace and love. I don't have more of it than she does or they do, nor less. So what's the boasting about? Everything I have received from him. Didn't earn anything. And, and what I have that's most important, so do they. Exactly the same. What, what is there to boast about? And while I am tempted to love myself, I, I see that actually He loves them and her. As I think that through and pray it through, not just cognitive. This is not just a I do this, that, and the other, and then I'm changed. To think that through and pray it through and say, God, would you, there's the facts, would you help me to actually believe them? Change happens in me by the power of God. And I am simultaneously reduced, humbled, and lifted up I'm reduced that I see that I, frankly, by myself, I am nothing. Because everything I am is from Him. And I am lifted up because I see I have been brought into, really brought into, a standing in His lavish, tremendous grace. I have been brought into, planted and will never be uprooted from A soil that is watered with a long, wide, high, deep love. Mine forever. What do I need that I don't have there? I have everything. And I'm lifted up. I have everything. I don't need to get anything from her or from them. Do you see that? That's a critical step there. I have everything. Along with Christ, will He not give me all things? Yes. Is Paul's, it's a rhetorical question. Of course. Of course. So what do you need to get from her or from them? Nothing. Nothing. Now, they may have insulted me and need to apologize. They may owe me money and they need to pay it. Sure, okay, but I can pursue that from a position of love and trust of an authority who will judge justly. I don't need to get from them. It changes how you pursue everything in life. Pride is undercut. Love is nourished as it is experienced from God. We love because He first loved us. As we experience the love from Him and we come to think and we pray, God, help me to believe that I actually stand in Your love. As He loves me, I now love. I'm changed because of the Gospel's changing of me. Self is properly ordered beneath Him and therefore not above you. the wisdom and the power of God to save and to change me, to satisfy me with a tremendous good glory. Who would have thought this up? All of it dressed in the guise of weakness and folly, ridiculed by the world. But don't be deceived by that. Don't let go of the Gospel. Don't let go of the cross. Because it is the wisdom and the power of God to change you and to change them. So continue to preach this cross to yourself, to one another, to those out there, not in a proud, triumphalistic way, but in a crucified way. In a lowly, and humble, and meek, and loving, and gracious way. Yet a clear way. We must be a cross-centered people with ourselves and with others because the power and the wisdom of God is available only in the cross for us and for them. He graciously move us and the American church back to the cross. Let me pray. God, I pray, I ask You to do the work that only You can do. To change the human heart. To change my heart, the hearts of those of us who are here, and the hearts of millions across the country. Lord, I ask you to conform us to your image and to produce in us a a great hope in you that makes us bold and humble at the same time, confident and meek at the same time. Lord, do this work in us as a church, And I pray as an aside, Lord, would you use this gospel, this cross in us to pull out of our flesh the the thorn of, of pride that leads to discord.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.